Okay, we're continuing in our series of messages from the book of John. What do you think of as a good trajectory in life? Maybe you think of living well, reaching old age, and uh, you hope to perhaps be well-known, or if not well-known, at least well-liked by the people that know you, and to maybe have accomplished something important in a career of some sort, built a family, left behind something important. A lot of times people face a real crisis when they reach their mid-years, maybe 40s, 50s, and feel like all these grand dreams they had for what they were going to do in life, they have not gotten where they were hoping to be by this age, and they begin to do the math and figure, you know, I don't have that much longer left, and it may be that I don't quite accomplish all that I would like to, and uh, the famous midlife crisis hits because we feel like we're not accomplishing what we wanted to in life. What if we've got it wrong? What if we've focused our lives on the wrong trajectory? And I think that's what John the Baptist was trying to teach his disciples in the passage we're going to be looking at today. Uh, I have titled today's message, Two Trajectories, and we are in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. Let's start reading verses 22 through 24. After these things, Jesus came with his disciples into the land of Judea, and he was staying there with them and was baptizing. Now John was also baptizing at Anan near Salem because there were many waters there and they were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So we have this brief period of time in which the ministries of Jesus and of John the Baptist are overlapping. And uh, this apparently happens after the events we've been looking at in John, the Passover in Jerusalem where uh, he cleansed the temple and apparently had this nighttime conversation with Nicodemus. And after this, uh, before he's gone back north to Galilee, he remains in the region of Judea and is baptizing with his disciples. And uh, John is somewhere nearby there. Different suggestions are being made for where exactly these two places mentioned are, Anan and Salem. Most people place them in one or other location in Samaria, kind of a little further north than Judea, but not quite as far north as Galilee. Uh, So Jesus is operating in northern Judea, and just a little bit further north than that would be John the Baptist uh, baptizing And the two ministries are briefly overlapping here. And uh, this isn't, you might think, that John and Jesus only did baptisms at the Jordan, but this is clearly not the Jordan. Uh, We're somewhere other than the Jordan, but apparently these are locations where there was plenty of water, enough water that you could baptize, that you could submerge a person in water. So Jesus and John the Baptist are both doing this at this time. Let's read verses 25 and 26. A dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew concerning purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. This is somewhat interesting here. There's a lot of speculation. What exactly was this argument about, this dispute John's disciples get into a dispute with a Jew. 
And if you've been paying attention thus far, that, that tends to be the way John uh, does shorthand for the Jewish leadership that is hostile to Jesus. Uh, but we don't know specifically about him beyond the fact that he was a Jew and that he was disputing with John's disciples about a matter concerning purification. And John doesn't elaborate. What exactly were they arguing about? Uh, I think uh, we can imagine their issues that we've already kind of seen come up in the Gospel of John. When they came to John, the leaders in Jerusalem sent people to John to question him. Uh, they asked him who he was and all of this. And then when G John said that he wasn't the Messiah and he wasn't Elijah and he wasn't the prophet, they said, well, then why are you baptizing? Uh, apparently, they didn't feel that it was legitimate for him to be baptizing people. And we talked about this when we were looking at that passage. What John was doing was different. Other people were not baptizing. The only time Jews in the first century would baptize someone is if a Gentile converted to Judaism, then a Jew would perform the ritual cleansing washing of him to kind of confirm and seal that now he has become a Jew. You know, he's been circumcised, he's done what he needs to do, and a Jew would wash him. But uh, the Jews in the first century washed themselves. All these ritual purification things that they had going on were things that people did to themselves. It wasn't something that you went to somebody so that they would cleanse you. It was something you uh, did personally. And uh, perhaps that was the dispute. Why are you treating Jews like Gentiles? Why are you treating them like they are outsiders that need somebody to induct them into uh, what we're talking about here. Perhaps that was uh, the issue. We're not sure. And I think the fact that John doesn't elaborate at all tells us a lot about this. I think John considers that that whole idea of being obsessive about rituals of purification is completely wrong-headed, and he doesn't even waste any ink talking about what they were arguing about. We can see the weight of this idea of rituals of purification in the recent story of uh, the weddings at Cana where they had 12 huge stone jars set apart with anywhere from 130 to 170 gallons of water there so that people could perform ritual cleansings throughout the marriage feast. That gives us an idea of how obsessed the Jews had become with ritual cleansing. If you go to the Holy Land today and look at archaeological excavations of the first century, you will find mikvahs everywhere. These little places where people could perform ritual bathing uh, to remain pure. And it's not, just, it's not about hygiene. It's about being uh, pure in God's eyes. And cleansing yourself of any contaminating thing you might have come, in, come into contact with. Well, John doesn't even talk about this dispute because I think he's very clear that Jesus has come to change this water of purification into wine for celebration. And the, the symbol has now been overtaken by the reality it pointed to. And there is no more need to limit ourselves to the symbol. The substance is here in Christ. Why waste time with the shadow? And, and I think that's John's attitude about the whole thing. He doesn't even explain what the argument was about. But apparently the argument or the discussion did make the disciples of John aware of something that they were concerned about. And they come to John and say to him, Rabbi, and this is the only place in the Gospel of John where John is addressed as Rabbi. 
Uh, but they're clearly disciples of his. They are apprenticed to him. They consider him their teacher and they're trying to learn from him. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness. This guy that back when you were at the Jordan on the other side, you were baptizing people. This guy that came by and you talked about him and, and spoke very positively about him. And uh, this guy you did this great favor to. Now he's baptizing. He is taking over your thing, John. He is copying your innovation. And uh, everybody is going to him. Everybody is leaving you, John, and running off to go after Jesus. And I, I ponder that. I think in my life, I've, I've been involved in church life pretty much my whole life. My parents were foreign missionaries, and I grew up in church, and I never left. Uh, I came to faith early and never had any interest in not being in church. But all this life I've lived, I have observed often this happen within the life of the church where people will be ministering and all of a sudden you're doing something and, and uh, it seems to be working and people are responding and lives are being changed and all of a sudden somebody else uh, steps in next door and starts working and, and doing things and uh, how quickly we get protective of our turf. Uh, this is my area. This is my thing. You have no right to be here. You have no right to be doing the same thing that I'm doing. Like uh, we kind of own it. We own the ministry. We own the lives of those we are working to reach. And that seems to be the, the disciples' concern. John you're losing disciples to Jesus. He's siphoning them off. He is poaching your disciples. How often have we heard complaints like that in the church? How does John respond to this? Well, before we get to that, I have a question from these verses. We often think our worth is tied to our accomplishments, even as Christians. In what ways do we find ourselves protecting our turf in life? And why do we do this? Let's keep reading verses 27 through 30. John answered and said, A human being can receive nothing, not even one thing, unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness to me that I said, I am not the Christ, but rather I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who is standing and listening to him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this my joy has been made complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. How does John respond to this problem? People are... Uh, horning in on your thing. They're taking away from you. There are a couple of things John has to say about all this. The first, he says, is that nothing anybody has is theirs unless God put it in their hands. Notice the breadth of that statement. A human being can receive nothing, not even one thing, unless it has been given to him from heaven. So John is saying, everything I've been doing, 
Even this baptism thing that everybody seems to think is some great innovation here, that's not something that I just generated out of nowhere. It's something God gave me to do. Everything we bring to the table is something God has put in our hands. The ability to think and to innovate and to come up with a new way to approach something, that is something God has given us. That's not something we earned or fabricated ourselves. My whole body is something God gave to me. I did not make it. My brain, my capacity to think through things and reason and remember things, that is all something God gifted me with. It's not something I made. Every single thing, John says, every single thing we contribute is us merely making use of what God put in our hands. So what right do we have to be territorial about anything? It isn't really my thing. And it isn't even really my accomplishment. I stand on the shoulders of God Almighty who put all of the necessary elements in my hands that I could do this thing that I'm doing. And ultimately, that's the only part of it that really amounts to anything. John is trying to help his disciples to understand when we're talking about ministry, God is the one doing things. God is the one even enabling us to do anything we're doing. So God is the one we're concerned about, not us. It's not about our pride. It's not about our recognition or accolades. And he reminds them, you know You bear witness. You have been eyewitnesses to me speaking these words. I am not the Christ. I am not the one who is going to come and fix creation. That is not me. In fact, I have been very clear from the beginning. I have been sent to prepare his way. I have been sent ahead of him, before him. That's all my job, is to make the way ready and to get people ready to turn, not to me, but to the one who's coming after me. How else can I put it, John thinks? Think of a wedding. This grand celebration typically would last a week long of just celebrating together that these two lives are joining together and the whole community rejoicing with them. I I envy the Jewish culture in the first century, the the way in which they celebrated marriage. Uh, Think of a marriage. There's a guy who has the bride, right? Who is that? Well, the groom, right? The groom is the one who has the bride. The bride does not belong to anybody else. The bride belongs to the groom. The groom belongs to the bride. They belong to each other. Now let's talk about a third person in this picture. What position is the friend of the bridegroom in? 
Does he have a right to be jealously protective of the bride? To think of the bride as his? No. That is absolutely wrong. No, the, the friend of the groom, his job is to stand next to the groom, to listen and rejoice at his voice. And his delight is in the bride and the groom joining together because he loves the groom. He's his friend and his joy makes his joy complete. He says that's exactly what's going on here because John knows who Jesus is. God told him that the one upon whom he saw the Spirit descending and remaining, that would be the one. And John bore witness, I have seen the Spirit descend and remain on him. He knew Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knew that this was everything we had been waiting for and this was the true object of Israel's devotion. So in this metaphor, Jesus is the bridegroom. The people of God are the bride. And John is the friend of the bridegroom. So yes, people are leaving John and going to Jesus. It's already begun to happen. Some of the first disciples Jesus has called used to be disciples of John. The transfer is happening. And John is apparently not concerned at all about that. You know why? Because he knew all along that the people of God do not belong to him. They belong to another. Sometimes in ministry and leadership in ministry, we have a tendency to think of the people of God as belonging to us. Pastors sometimes think of this as my church. Pastors and sometimes even congregations think of the pastor as the head of the congregation. But the Bible is very clear. The church has one head and it's no human being. It's Jesus Christ. We are under shepherds at best. We are fellow sheep. And uh, we, along with the whole rest of the body, belong to Jesus. And sometimes we allow leaders to get prideful and to get these huge egos built because we fawn after them and we build this whole culture of personality and uh, people flock to these kinds of figures and you know you're you're wanting to go to the conference that has all the big names and you can sit in on panels with all of the published authors that everybody knows about and everybody's read their books and they're leading the mega churches and we create these cults of personalities and then we're surprised when leaders seem to think that somehow it's all about them that somehow they are the object of devotion And that somehow the whole ministry of the body of Christ belongs to them. It is copyrighted and proprietary to them. John, whom Jesus described as and said about John the Baptist, no greater man has been born than him. John the Baptist, whom Jesus spoke so highly of, 
did not fall into that trap. He said, I don't have anything that heaven didn't put in my hands. And I know, I knew from the beginning that none of this is mine. That the true object of our devotion is the one coming behind me. And I'm not here to take that away from him. Our job in ministry is not to get people to fall in love with us. Not to get people to feel like they need us for people to depend desperately on us. Our goal in ministry is to bring people to the groom and stand back behind him and rejoice at his voice. John said, my joy has been made complete. It's happening finally. I came to prepare people for Jesus. And when I hear that people are flocking to Jesus, I feel like my work has been done. I have accomplished what I was meant to accomplish, which is bring people to Jesus. That's it. How to sum it up. How to put it into a pithy statement that we can easily commit to memory. He must increase, but I must decrease. I started out asking you about your trajectory in life. We tend to think of it as a trajectory of increase, right? From the relatively... Uh, minor contributions of childhood to the type of impact on the world we can have in adulthood. And we tend to think of growing greater. And uh, John said there's, there's one person who needs to increase. And that's not us. It's Jesus. He is the one from heaven. He is the one come down from heaven to reveal to us the transcendent realities that we have access to nowhere else in all of creation. He alone can illuminate us as to who God is. He alone can offer us the Holy Spirit of God, reconciliation to the God from whom we have been severed because of our sins. He is the only one with the authority and the power to issue the promise of eternal life. There's nothing else in all creation that can offer anything like that. Therefore, He alone must increase. He's the only thing all of us need. He's the only one creation needs. Everything else is utterly dispensable. Jesus is not. And until he has filled every nook and cranny of creation and all creation is singing his praise and surrendered to him as king and lord, until that moment, he must increase. He must. All creation desperately needs it. But I must decrease. You want to know when you have reached the pinnacle of achievement in ministry? When you have led people to fall so deeply in love with Jesus, they've forgotten about you. That's it. 
That is what must happen. I have to become less important. Because if I'm the one that's getting more and more important, guess what? I have become a new idol. I am a new competing voice trying to draw people away from devotion to Christ to me. And what I'm asking the bride to do is adulterous and idolatrous if I want her to put her devotion on me. I must decrease. I must become less. And don't think if you're not in leadership that this somehow uh, passes you by. This principle applies to the life of every Christian. Your goal in life is not to make some grand big thing of yourself. Your goal in life is to make a grand big thing of Jesus and he must grow in your life until his spirit fills every nook and cranny of who you are. And he becomes everything. And you become nothing. We want to move completely away from the self-centeredness, the me-centeredness that has poisoned our lives and that in, in the aggregate of all humankind has poisoned creation itself. We must decrease. I don't mean by that to suggest that somehow we disappear and all that's left is Jesus. Remember, John talks about heaven putting things into our hands. You see, Jesus has placed in each of us a unique blend, mix, recipe of things that reflect his glory in a very unique way. And my key in life is not to just disappear and become a non-person. My, my goal in life is to become the perfect prism through which people can be drawn to Christ in the unique flavor of what He has made of me, in the unique pattern of what He has composed of me. And I find my true worth and value in the identity that is built on Christ Himself. Not any accomplishment, not any achievement, not any notoriety. He must increase, but I must decrease I have a question from these verses why is finding our joy in the greatness of Jesus a better path than seeking it on our own recognition and let's read the last few verses 31 through 36 the one coming from above is above all the one being from the earth is from the earth and is speaking out from the earth The one who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, to this he bears witness. Yet no one is receiving his testimony. The one who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God sent is speaking God's words. For he is giving the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and he has given all things into his hand. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, 
But the one who does not believe in the Son will not see life, but God's wrath remains upon him. Here we have some continued teaching and uh, some people think maybe this is still John the Baptist talking. Maybe it's the narrator, John the gospel writer, who stepped in with a narrative, uh, a narrator's comment on all of this. I, I tend to think this is still the continuation of what John the Baptist is talking about. He's fleshing out. Either way, whoever it is that's talking, we're trying to flesh out what John the Baptist has just said. The one coming from above is above all. He's already described Jesus as that. Jesus has described himself as that. The only one who has come from above, the only one who can grant us access to that realm to which none of us has access. He has come and brought that realm to us. So because of that, because he is the only transcendent God, the only one that can go beyond creation, because of that he is above everything. That's Jesus. That's the one they're complaining about. Everybody's flocking to him. The one from the earth. Here we're talking about John the Baptist. He's from the earth. And all he can talk about is what he's made aware of from within the confines of his earthly existence. It's out from that earthly existence that he shares what he has to share. But, you know, and it's repeated again. John repeats it again. What he, uh, the one who comes from heaven is above all. He said that twice in case we forget it. Who cares about the one from earth? The one from heaven is the one we need to worry about. He's the important one. He's the one who is above all. And, again, verse 32 uh, John, the gospel writer, is very um, ambiguous at some points in his gospel. and I, I kind of think he does it on purpose sometimes. But uh, what he has seen and heard, to this he bears witness. Yet no one is receiving his testimony. And the question is, who does that he refer to? Is it the one from above or the one from the earth? Is it Jesus or John the Baptist? Uh, I tend to think... We're talking about Jesus because it is kind of a repeated theme, has been thus far. And in, in the previous conversation immediately before this that Jesus has with Nicodemus, he talks about, uh, we have borne witness to you and yet you have not believed. When we have shared with you about earthly things, how can we share about you, with you about heavenly things? So uh, I think we're tying into that same idea here, that Jesus has been bearing witness and no one wants to receive his witness. That kind of echoes what we find in chapter 1, uh, that uh, he came into the world and, and yet the world knew him not. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet he follows it up with kind of a, a, a contradiction. It's not that everybody rejected him, but to those who did receive him, he granted the authority to become children of God. There's a similar construction here. No one is receiving his testimony. The one who has received his testimony. So there has been a, a very large-scale rejection of Jesus, but there are those who have received his witness, his testimony. 
And those who have received it, that person has set his seal to this, that God is true. The idea of the seal is something you would have like on a signet ring that you could press into hot wax and this would certify, it's like signing your name to something, sealing that something is uh, what it claims to be or the, what it needs to be. It's the authorization, the confirmation that something is Uh, what it claims to be and this is what you are setting your seal to when you receive Jesus' witness that God is true that God keeps his promises that God does what he says he does that God is who he says he is that is what you are uh, buying into when you turn to Jesus in faith he whom God sent is speaking God's words For he is giving the Spirit without measure. He who God sent, he whom God sent, I think is clearly Jesus, who is speaking God's words to us. But again, we have some more ambiguity here. For he is giving the Spirit without measure. Who is giving the Spirit? Is God giving the Spirit to the one he sent? Or is the one God sent giving the Spirit to those who believe in him? Uh, I think lean toward the second option there I think the idea and we find it throughout John's gospel is that Jesus is giving to us the gift of the spirit the spirit by which this miraculous birth he's been talking to Nicodemus about can take place this birth from above Jesus is talking about that and I I think John here is describing that God sent Jesus And that he is not only sharing the words of God, but is actually sharing the very Spirit of God and doing so without measure. In other words, he's not doling it all, doling it out in a miserly fashion, but he is generously pouring out the Spirit of God on anyone who will come to him in faith. Without measure, without reservation, there's nobody, Jesus is saying, I will not grant you the gift of the Spirit. I think that's what we have here. If we were to look at it the other way I was suggesting, then it might seem that somehow Jesus himself did not have the Spirit until God gave him the Spirit, and we would fall into what I would call an adoptionist heresy, that Jesus was only God when God adopted him, and then he became God. But I think John is very clear throughout his gospel that before anything was, the Word was, Jesus was God from the very beginning. It's not something that happened at one point in his ministry so I do think the this idea of giving the spirit without measure is the gift that Jesus gives to those who believe the father loves the son and he has given all things into his hands here's the thing the father loves the son has given everything to into the son's hands so that when the son is giving out the gifts that come from above the gifts of heaven he does so without limitation the, the spirit can be poured out without measure. Life can be granted with eternal extension. It can be uh, measureless. Because the Father has laid, put all things into his hands. Do you begin to understand why John says that he has to increase? Jesus must increase until he becomes the rightful focus of all creation. And let's be honest, we're not there right now. We still need to decrease significantly. 
before the balance is set right. But Jesus has been given all things, and this is what he has come to share with us. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who does not believe in the Son will not see life. Don't buy into the deception that there are a thousand ways to get to God, that there are a thousand paths to eternal life. There is one. And we either take it or we leave it. And that's fine. If you don't want it, then don't take it. But let, let's be honest with you here. This is the option. Not one among many. And you can spend your whole life trying to build your own option, but it's not going to happen. There is only one come from above. Only one granted all things by the Father. Only one with the authority to make the promise of eternal life. Only one. So if you believe in him, you have eternal life. If you do not put your faith in him, you will never see it. It will never happen. God's wrath remains upon him. Notice, again, Jesus, he talked about this in last week's passage. He didn't come to make our situation worse. He didn't come to tell us we're a bunch of sinners and condemn us. That was already happening. We were already condemned before he showed up. He didn't come to make that happen. That was already done. We were already under the wrath of God against all sin. And we who have spit in the face of our Creator and have chosen to build life our way are under the wrath of God. Jesus came to offer us pardon, to offer us escape from this terrible trap we find ourselves in. But if we reject him, then not only will we never see the life he's offering to us, but we're going to stay right where we were, under God's wrath. And People turn this backwards. They say God is kind of fickle and cruel. He says you have to either believe in Jesus or I'm going to condemn you to hell. Well, no. God's saying you're already condemned. The only reason I sent Jesus is to give you the option to get out of that. You have already ruined your life and creation. It is already done. The only thing God did sending Jesus was give you the option to get out of that. Tell me how that's unfair or unkind. I have a final question. Jesus came to give anyone who wants it free access to God's Holy Spirit and eternal life. Why do we often prefer to cling to what we think we have rather than give it all up to receive the greater gifts Jesus offers us. We face a war, and the war is waged inside within each one of our hearts. Am I going to make myself the center of life, of my life? Or will I allow God to be the center of my life? Will I live as a creature whose rightful existence is arranged around his creator and not try to invert the order of creation and make the creator be there to serve me? Will I discover 
in Christ. The fullness of the gifts he wants to bring into my life. Will I let go of the petty, small, earthbound, paltry things I have and open myself up to the greater things Jesus has come to give me? There are two trajectories and they need to be happening at the same time. Jesus needs to increase in me. In this world, in this church, he needs to become more. And I've got to become less. It's got to be less about me. I've got to be less important. I'm, I'm okay with people loving me, but they should not turn to me first. They should be blinded by the brightness of Jesus and have eyes only for him. Am I going to live a life where my goal is to disappear in the blaze of the glory of Christ and that everyone be drawn to him? I pray that is so. In my life, I pray it is so in yours. Let me close with a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you for coming from heaven to bring to us all that we could never have access to apart from you. Glorious, eternal, wonderful things. Thank you for bringing God back to my life. Thank you for making life a reality, and for extending to me the promise of being able to enjoy it in you forever. Lord Jesus, grow. You must increase. Help us to be devoted, heart and soul, to the task of your increase in this world. And help us to decrease as you spread out and your glory becomes the reality of our lives we love you jesus it's in your name it's by your grace that we say all these things amen